Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last month I was driving through a small downtown in northeastern Tennessee and realized that my two left tires were directly on top of the state line. On my right side was still Tennessee, but on my left side was the state of Virginia. The yellow line was the border line. It occurred to me that these shop owners on opposite side of the street were not only in two different states, but subject to different laws and taxation. The name of the town was Bristol, and when researching its history, I learned that this strange, multi-state downtown was recognized by the U.S. Congress as the official birthplace of country music. I found a local museum called the Birthplace of Country Music Museum and reached out to head curator Renee Rogers to learn more. All right, so why don't we go ahead and start with you explaining to me what your name is and your title there. My name is Renee Rogers, and my title is Head Curator of the Birthplace of Country Music Museum. Now, your museum is located in Bristol. Is that in Tennessee, or is that in Virginia? So, that's interesting. Our museum is in Bristol, Virginia, but our offices, where I am right now, (laughs) are in Bristol, Tennessee. The state line goes right down the middle of our historic downtown, and it's called State Street strangely enough. And they're actually two separate towns, obviously, because of the two states. And they each have their own city councils, their own police departments, their own court systems, their own school systems. But we function often, especially in the downtown area, as one entity, even if that's not what we are on the civic definition or the political definition of what a city is. Sure. Yeah, that's fascinating that your technical city would be in both states, but then you have to operate as two different cities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's wild when you try and explain that across the street in Tennessee, the taxes are better for this. But on this side of the street in Virginia, the taxes are better for this or lots of little things that you wouldn't even think about. Now, was Bristol originally founded before one of those states was formed? Is that why it's on the line? No. So it was formed in the 1850s officially. And They were actually called two different things for a while. So there was Bristol, I think, was the Tennessee side. And the other side was called Goodsonville, I believe. But everyone had gotten so used to calling the town itself Bristol. So they then incorporated as two separate cities on the state line, but within two different states. Fascinating. So is there a post office in both sides? There used to be. And now we share a post office and the main post office is on the Tennessee side. And we've got like a smaller little post office on the Virginia side. But there used to be two quite grand, those grand old post office buildings. So we have two really amazing old post office buildings in Bristol, one on the Tennessee side, one on the Virginia that are quite grand. But neither one of them holds the post office anymore. What are they used for now? One of them is a event space. Plus, it has a speakeasy in the basement, which is cool. 
And the other one is privately owned, but they also use it as an event space. I've not been in the upstairs of the Virginia one in a while, but the Tennessee one, they've done a beautiful restoration of it and has a lot of the old post office stuff in it. And it's really cool. Uh, this is just a little side story, but I was telling Nick how I discovered your museum. So I'm in the very north of Indiana, and I was traveling in Tennessee at the time, and I was looking for the nearest Tesla charger because I drive a Tesla, mm-hmm. and I saw that Bristol has two Tesla chargers, oh, but they're listed. I didn't know that. <laughs> as, yeah, but they're listed as one of them is in Bristol, Virginia, and the other one's in Bristol, Tennessee. And I was like, which one is it? Is this Tesla charger in Virginia or Tennessee? Because I'm in Tennessee. I don't need to go to Virginia. Mm-hmm. So I was looking that up on the map, trying to figure out which one was the case. And when I did that, I came across your museum. And I was like, that looks like a fascinating museum. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, just the story of what we tell in the museum is great. But like you said, the history of the of a city on two state lines and functioning in that way. And it's not like we're the only one in America on state lines, but there's not a lot of us. And it is interesting. Yeah. So we're going to get into, of course, the what happened for the birthplace. But at the time, this was that that was the case, though, that Bristol was known as a place on the state line. Oh, yeah. And back in the 1920s, they put up the and I don't know if you saw this when you came here, the sign across the state line, mm-hmm. a big illuminated sign. So it's again, that's a wonderful historic piece of history because there's not a lot left of those illuminated like city signs, and it says Bristol, and then it has two little arrows that point to either side because it's straddling State Street up near the train station. One points to Virginia and one points to Tennessee, and it goes Bristol, points to the two states, and it goes a good place to live underneath. So yeah, it's something that it was known for a while, but like I said, in the 1850s, they actually had two different names. So because they they weren't allowed to incorporate a city across state lines, basically. That makes sense. Yeah. So on October 12th, 1998, Congress designated Bristol as the birthplace of country music. Can you explain to me the events that led up to Bristol having that type of recognition? So it started off with a group of dedicated community members who were interested in the history and interested in that musical heritage that came from that event and from our region as a whole, really digging deeper into the history and wanting to share it more widely. And then doing a very good job of that. They did a lot of work to share the story, to create programming, to tell our legislators about it. And so both states initially did it. So it became, it was a, they were two state declarations of that name. And then I think, I believe it was one each, maybe from each state went forward and took it to the U.S. Congress, but it started out at the state level. And from, and that got to the state level from just local community members who were thought this was an important piece of history that needed to be recognized more widely. So why is Bristol known as the birthplace of country music? So, you know, it's interesting because no single thing, especially music, they never have a single birthplace. But we are definitely, the reason why we're known as it is because of the 1927 Bristol sessions that happened here. And there are so many stories that like come before and after the Bristol sessions that play into that birth of country music. But we sort of, what happened here is that birth of that early commercial country music industry, because while there had been recordings of what was then called hillbilly music or that early traditional old time style music as far back as or much earlier in the 1920s, like 1922, 1923, there was a lot of things that happened that made 
Bristol's really have a particular impact. I call it the perfect storm of events that happened around those 1927 Bristol sessions. One of the things was about technology. Up until about 1926, they had been primarily reliant on the acoustic horn technology for recording. So that is a non-electrical type of recording and it did the job well, but obviously when you're doing something without the electrification, electrification and you don't have the amplification process happening, it's tricky, especially when you're dealing with, say, a band full of different instruments and people are having to move around to get up near the horn so that they can be heard better. A lot of us think of the guitar as one of the primary iconic instruments of country music, but for a while it was just a rhythm background instrument, especially when it was being recorded by an acoustic horn because the fiddle and the banjo had a much more driving, harder sound and could drown it out. So it it wasn't heard as well. So when the electric microphone was invented around 1925-26, that started to transform the way those records would sound to people. So with Bristol, it was recorded with those, the electric microphones. So you had this more nuanced, balanced sound. And of course, a better sounding record is probably going to sell better. The second thing was Ralph Pierre. He was the producer at the Victor Talking Machine Company, who was the record label that was here in 1927. He was a visionary. There was some amazing producers out there and certainly just in our, you know, just down the road at Johnson City and then a little bit further to Knoxville, some amazing hillbilly and other musics were recorded around the same time with producers from other record labels. But Ralph Pierre, I think, was interesting because he really, he knew how to make money from the music, but he also knew what would sell well and what people would be interested in and was very good at finding it. And so when he came here, he had his own music publishing company So he was able to, he'd set up his own music publishing company so that he was able to copyright the performance itself, copyright the song if it didn't have any copyright already attached to it. And also he could, he took on some of the acts that he met as part of his like slew of artists. And he was paying these royalties. He was paying um, a one-off fee. So people were getting a good deal from it as artists. And I just think that Sort of the basis of what he was doing there is a lot of what we see in the music industry today. And what's interesting to me about Ralph Peer is not only what he did for Hillbilly music, but he had been really active in race records before this. So that was music that was based on the music of African-American artists and aimed at an African-American audience. But also later down the line, he got into Latin music, classical music, and the company that he started, which was called the Southern Music Publishing Company, is still around today, still family owned and run, and is a, one of the biggest independent publishing music publishing companies in the world. And you think, that guy was here in 1927 recording these songs, and it's pretty exciting. And then third of all is who was here for those sessions. This was one of the first times that we had what were called these location recording sessions, not where the artists were traveling up to New York or a bigger studio in a more urban space like Richmond, Indiana, or Atlanta, Georgia, but they were actually the recording equipment and the recording personnel were coming to the region where that music was being based. So it meant that you got a lot more artists recorded at once. They were here for two weeks at the very end of July, beginning of August, recorded 19 different acts, 76 different songs, 69 of which were released from those recordings. So compare that to like if when an artist would go up and record several songs and then another artist might come up, they were getting a lot of music for that a really short space of time. Pierre came here because he knew Ernest Stoneman already. Ernest Stoneman had been a, was a recording veteran at this point. He had recorded all, up to 80 to 100 sides already by the time 1927 rolled around. And he recommended to Ralph Pierre that this would be a great place to come to find that hillbilly music that he was looking for. You had veterans like Ernest Stoneman who recorded here. And then you had newcomers who were 
not newcomers to performing, but newcomers to being recorded and released. And that was Jimmy Rogers, who became known as the father of country music, and the Carter family, who became known as the first family of country music, two really foundational acts to the country music that came after them. And even today, Ernest Stoneman and the Stoneman family, again, were hugely instrumental in the development of the country music industry. And then you had a lot of other interesting acts that came out of that. The first Holiness music was recorded here by Ernest Phipps and his Holiness Quartet. And then the next year when Ralph Pierre came back in 1928 by the Holiness Singers with Ernest Phipps, we had someone like Blind Alfred Reed, who had all these amazing original compositions that were ranging from event stories about train wrecks and mine disasters, early protest songs. So there's a wonderful song about how can a poor man stand to live a lot of this was happening right around the Depression when he was still writing these songs. And after 1927, when he was still producing songs, it's, I think it's called How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live? It, long title, but it tells you everything you need to know about what the song's about in that title. So just these really interesting recordings. And we had one African-American artist at the Bristol Sessions, Elle Watson, who, despite the fact that he did two harmonica pieces that weren't too dissimilar from the harmonica pieces that Henry Witter did, Henry Witter's harmonica pieces were were marketed as Hillbilly and L. Watson's were marketed as race records. But one of the Johnson brothers, Charles Johnson, played on L. Watson's records and L. Watson played on some of the Johnson brothers' records. And so those are some of the earliest integrated country and blues records also. So there's some really interesting bits of history that sort of intersect in Bristol that helped make it so special and also have that impact, especially when you think of the artists, the technology, and the producer. For the Bristol Sessions, did you say that was over a two-week period? It was the very end of July, beginning of August. And how did he get the word out that they were going to be recording this and get people in? Initially, he put an advertisement in the local paper. It was an advertisement, quite small actually, at the bottom of one of the local furniture dealers, furniture stores that sold like Victrolas and records and that kind of thing. And it brought a few people out. Plus, they had they did also pre-book, and I put my little air quotes around that because I'm not sure it's as formal as that, but they had some artists in mind already to perform so that they knew that there was a few artists on the books already to perform. For instance, Ernest Stoneman is a really great example of that. They recorded about 16 different songs, he and various family members and friends in different configurations. But then after a few days when they weren't getting as many people coming out of the sort of woodwork on their own, he persuaded the local paper to do a short editorial or article about what he was doing there and talked about how much money Ernest Stenman had made the previous year in royalties. And for the time period, it was a really big chunk of change. And that brought a lot more people out interested in wanting to record. And people like the Carter family who traveled down from Hilton's Virginia, which today is like a 45-minute drive, 50 minutes maybe, it took them an entire day their car broke down two or three times with an eight-month pregnant Maybell in the back seat. It was, it was a big deal to come out for something like that, but they got people coming from Kentucky, from West Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia. So it, it did work. And he also, I believe, talked to one of the civic clubs, and I can't remember if it was the Rotary or the Kiwanis or one of those types of clubs about the work that he was doing. And at the time... The music was being called hillbilly music? Yes. Yeah. And that was, again, something that was attributed to Ralph Peer, that terminology. It's, I don't know. We're not entirely sure how completely accurate the story is, but the, I, that story is that back in the earlier 1920s, 
he had been recording for a different record label that he worked for at the time. And there were there was a group that came up and they didn't have a name. And so after he recorded their songs, he said, what do I call you? Because he wanted to be able to write it down on the cue sheet. And they were like, you can call us whatever you like. We're just a bunch of hillbillies from North Carolina and Virginia. And so they wrote down the hillbillies. And so supposedly that's where the sort of hillbilly term for the music came from. And what was different between the music that was being recorded there versus the other music that was being widely recorded elsewhere? This music, this, what we call, what I'm calling hillbilly music right now, obviously this music had been being played and heard for decades before this and was very common in this region and other Appalachian regions in particular, though not only in Appalachia. And the recording industry at the time was doing a lot of race records. Some of the earliest race records were being done around 1920. And that's what we would think of today as blues a lot of, and then branching out as you move forward in time to jazz. There's also, I guess, like vaudeville and popular songs. We, what we think of as pop music today, they had their own version of back there. And just, those were the songs that were being played in the dance halls and being played on the stages and that people were hearing all the time. But there was also classical music. And one of the things that I think is really interesting when you look at some of the records from like that early period of the 20th century is the sleeves that they're put in often have different songs listed on them or different types of music lifted, listed on them. And I sort of think of it, the you know, when you go to a website where you buy something and then the next time you go to that website, it's, hey, you bought this last time. I bet you would like this. It was like the equivalent of that, but on the record sleeve. And they would have like different ethnic groups music. So they might have, the, like I said, they might have the Latin music or they might have Polish music or they might have like, Irish music. So there was all sorts of different musics being recorded. And the hillbilly music hit its stride in those early 20, 1920s, mid to... 1920s and 1930s, when it was really being recorded heavily and finding that rural, that what was perceived as a white rural audience, but was, of course, much broader than that. Because the tricky thing with genre, when you define genre, is that you're not really necessarily defining your listeners or the people who are making that music. You're defining what you think will work in a marketing sense. So, you know, a lot of what was happening in race records and hillbilly music, they were influencing each other. They were certainly audiences were listening to those types of music. There's a lot of country blues that like crosses the line between the two with both white musicians and, and black musicians playing that music. So those genre terms are helpful when talking about it, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the full reality of what people were doing when they were listening and playing the music themselves. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When they decided to release the recordings, were they releasing them as records? Um, yes. So these would have been flat disc records, one song per side. They were called 78s because they were rotated 78 revolutions per minute. And they, they only would fit about three and a half to four minutes on each side. So what's also cool about it is that, of course, a lot of the songs that were being sung were based on much older songs, ballads in particular. And those ballads, when they were being sung just in the community as something that was being shared almost like oral storytelling, they might be 
15, 16, 20 verses long, which is not going to fit on a three and a half minute record. So a lot of a lot of those songs that were being based on those were having to be cut down and being whittled down to this telling the story in an engaging way for three and a half to four minutes to fit on those recording, those recorded discs. How many were they able to make? For the 1927 Bristol Sessions. So there were 76 different sides or songs. So when I say side, side of a record, but it was 76 different songs. So actually that's not true. Because some of them were like, they did more than one version of a song. And 69 of them were actually released to the public and sold. Do you know how many sold? Not off the top of my head. I can't think of it. Some of them were very... So let's think about Jimmy Rogers, father of country music. He recorded two songs at the Bristol Sessions, and they did okay. They weren't like huge sellers. But Ralph Pierce saw that there was something special there and invited him to come record more later that year, or early 1928. And that's when he recorded Tea for Texas, which was a huge seller. So when you're talking about huge sellers, it really, it's very different from the way we would talk about them. But say, for instance, one of the best sellers in 1928, I think, sold about 14,000 copies. But then you did have other artists who could sell a lot more than that. It's just very, it was very dependent. And then also remember, this was right at the cusp of the Great Depression, which also influences what you might see on that. So for instance, the Johnson City Sessions, which happened in 1929, a couple of years later, again, some amazing music came out of those sessions, but it happened right at the time when the country was losing the farm, as they said, and people weren't buying records. They weren't able to afford things. It changed the impact of those sessions because of the economic hardships that people were facing. For the Bristol sessions, this was the first time, if I'm hearing you correctly, this was the first time that this type of music was recorded to be released as records. No, it had been recorded and released before this. So all okay. the way back in 1922 to 1923, you had some early recordings, but they were happening in the studios of those record labels in places like New York or other urban areas. So it wasn't the first recordings. And that's why the birthplace of country music is a wonderful title because it's a wonderful story, a way to get people interested in what this story is and its impact. But people mistake that it's the first and they weren't the first and they weren't the last, but they were significant. And that's why that birthplace title was given to us. And that's why I said earlier when we were speaking that there's a lot of other places that can be part of that, that are part of that birthplace story. So you think about Fiddlin' John Carson, who recorded down in Atlanta in, I believe, 1924 or 23, 1923 or 24. And that was the first time that Southern music had been recorded in the South where before like it had been someone traveling up to the new, to new york for instance so there are a lot of other parts of the story at other places that play into that i got you so for the significance for your museum to be called the birthplace are you saying it's because of the amount of songs that were recorded and the type of technology that was used at the time like i said that idea the way we look at it is that early the birth of early commercial country music so the fact that like you said, a lot of recordings all at once. Um, the technology had recently changed, so they sold better. A producer who n- knew how to really make the most of the music that he found and that he recorded, but also that had a more a very far-reaching effect on the music industry as a whole and how it functions today. And then the fact that you have a recording veteran like Ernest Stenman and his wife Hattie and his friends and family here, but then you had the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers recording in Bristol. That was their very first time 
recording and having records released. And because of their huge foundational impact on country music as a whole, that's, that is why we look at it as the early commercial country music beginnings. I got it. So the event that happened was just a huge enough event that it, it helped project country music. Yeah, it helped spur it forward. For the birthplace of country music for your museum, what kind of exhibits and things would people be able to see when they come visit you? So we're a really interactive museum. We're at two stories. All of the upstairs is dedicated to the permanent exhibit. And that is all of the different galleries that help to tell the story of the 1927 Bristol session. So providing the context of what you and I were just talking about, that there were other recording sessions that happened before and after, that there were other like things going on in this world of early hillbilly music that had impact. But also then looking at the very the specifics of the 1927 Bristol session story, giving viewers or visitors a chance to dig deep into that music, learn more about each and every artist or band that performed, and then looking beyond it to the way that the music from those sessions and that early country traditional old-time music as a whole has been influential beyond that moment in time. And then also a lot of our museum permanent exhibits talk about the impact of technology and how important technology was. Because around the same time, not only were we having the recording industry blossoming, but you have the beginnings of the radio industry. And radio is a huge part of why this music was so popular because of how widely it was distributing hillbilly music and the barn dances that were coming up in the 1920s and 30s and like sharing this music. So like the Grand Ole Opry, the National Barn Dance, and then more local ones, like we had a, we had one here in Bristol called Farm and Fun Time in the 1940s and 50s. It was really a big starting point for several well-known bluegrass artists like Ralph Stanley and Jim and Jesse McReynolds. So the upstairs does that, but it does it in a really interactive way. There's four film experiences where you get to play on the touch screens and listen to the music and pick what you're going to do. You get to mix your own music. You need you get a chance to sing the music and record yourself and see if you can yodel like Jimmy Rogers, which is a lot harder than you would think. One of the films is in a nice wide open space because the idea is that we want people to dance. Kids are way better at that than adults because adults get embarrassed, but kids are like wide open in there. It's great. And every room is a soundscape. So every room has music playing of some sort. Um, The other thing that we did is set the context of Bristol itself. So we tell the history of Bristol leading up to when the sessions happened here. And then finally, the really cool thing in our upstairs is that we have a live working radio station, Radio Bristol, that is part of the exhibit. So you can see into the radio booth and the radio studio from the exhibit. So when we have any of our DJs in there, you can see them and listen to, you can put on here your phones and listen to what they're doing in the booth. That's unusual. That's not something you get in many museums. And then on our lower level, we have a performance theater that is about a hundred seat performance theater, which is wonderful acoustically designed theater for performances, but also we can screen films there. We do a lot of programming in that room. Um, educational and public programming and performances. And we also have our 2,000 square foot special exhibits gallery downstairs. And that's where we rotate out different temporary exhibits about two or three times a year. We're about to open exhibit in March, end of March, on women and old time music specifically. So that, and that's one that we did in-house. A lot of the exhibits we bring from other places, but this is one that we created in-house. And the other thing that's cool about our museum is that we're a Smithsonian affiliated museum. So that means that we have access to a wide range of Smithsonian resources that we can bring into our communities. And we brought several Smithsonian exhibits and programs, and hopefully one day we'll bring a Smithsonian artifact to to display here, but we haven't done that yet. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Do you have a favorite artifact or an exhibit? 
Oh, that's a hard one because it depends on the day sometimes. I really like that we have a Western electric microphone. So we don't have the one that was at the 1927 Bristol Sessions, but we have the same make and model of the one that was used at the Bristol Sessions. And that's a pretty cool thing to have. We also have some cool instruments that I get excited about. We have some wonderful, we have various instruments on loan to us from a local collector that are just wonderful. One of which is a harp guitar, which is a very unusual instrument that a lot of people don't have never heard of or know about. And I love the look of it. But right now we also have on display Jimmy Rogers blue yodel guitar, which is on loan to us. And that's probably, that's pretty special. (laughs) Yeah, that's very special. That's pretty cool. And one of the things that I like about our museum is that we've been very fortunate that we've met and built relationships with several family members of artists who recorded here back in the 1920s. And they have been so generous with their stories, their oral histories, and also giving us items that are related just to the personal side of their family members, which I really appreciate because I think it's nice to have all sides of this of that person's life and able to talk about it. So it's been really special to us that people have shared that with us. Sure. One of the things I saw on your website was called the Bristol Rhythm and Roots Reunion. Could you explain that? Yeah. So we, the museum is part of a larger organization just called the Birthplace of Country Music. And the Birthplace of Country Music runs the museum. It runs the radio station that I mentioned earlier, WBCM Radio Bristol. And it runs Bristol Rhythm and Roots Reunion, which is an annual music festival. We are in our, we will be going into our 22nd year this year because we, we were meant to be in our 23rd, but we had to skip COVID year in 2020. But it was born out of, again, the idea of celebrating the musical heritage of Bristol and the region. So a lot of what, a, a lot that came from that idea. And it grew from something that was quite small to the festival that it is today that has about 100 artists over three weekends on about 15 different stages and inside and out. And it's a really unusual festival because instead of being in a field somewhere, which is the typical music festival experience, we close down our entire historic downtown and have a festival in that public downtown area. So outdoor stages, different bars and restaurants help us to host the indoor stages. So it's a bit of a different experience than what most music festivals feel like. Could you talk a little bit about the artists that participate in the festival? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So let's see. Last year, we had Roseanne Cash, which was pretty exciting. For the last several years, we've had War and Peace, which are a great band duo. We've had Old Crow Medicine Show. We've had Lou Harris, the Indigo Girls. Marty Stewart is a big regular. We've had Dwight Yoakam. We've had um, big names that you would recognize from country music, but they're not all necessarily just big country artists. There's also like a lot of Americana and roots music thrown in there and country and blues even. It's a really diverse lineup of artists. So we have a small group of headliners. We always try and really highlight a lot of wonderful local and regional artists. This will this is my final question for you, but I wonder I wondered if you could just say a few more things about the museum, like maybe the hours, your website. And if there's anything else in town that you think people who would be listening might find interesting if they come to visit the museum. Yeah. So the Birthplace of Country Music Museum is open Tuesdays through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And Sundays, 1 to 5. We are not open on Mondays. And there's a few um, national holidays that we're not open on. But if you go to our website, you can find that information. Our website is birthplaceofcountrymusic.org. And 
From that main website, you can dig deeper into each of the branches so you can go down and learn more about the museum. And visiting the museum, you can learn more about the festival and how to get tickets and all the cool things you need to know about that. And then you can also learn more about the radio station and listen to that online. So the radio station is a low power station, but you can listen to it online or stream it via app. So you can encounter us in a variety of digital ways. Bristol has a lot to offer. We have a really nice downtown that has retained a lot of its historic character and is walkable. So it's a great place to just base yourself for the day. And what's cool about the museum is that once you bought your ticket at the museum, you can come in and out on your wristband all day long. So you can come in for an hour and then go get some lunch and come back. So you can really have to spend a whole day in our downtown. There's some great independent restaurants downtown, lots of independent stores and boutiques, an art gallery, a couple of art galleries. And then if you want to go a little bit further afield from the downtown, we're very near some wonderful hiking trails. If you're into NASCAR, we have the fastest quarter mile track in the world at Bristol Motor Speedway with regular races there in the, through the spring and fall. And there's also some great places nearby, like Abingdon, Virginia is only 15 minute drives north. And it's another great historic little town with the William King Museum of Art, wonderful restaurants. You can get on the Virginia Creeper Trail there. If you go a little bit further afield, you can go to Mount Rogers, which is the highest peak in Virginia, which is a really great hike and see the wild ponies. We're also really well known in this area for fishing and outdoor recreational activities, canoeing, kayaking that kind of thing. There's a great, there's some great places to listen to music. So the Carter Family Fold, Hilton's Virginia, which was started by Jeanette Carter, A.P. Carter's daughter back in the 1970s and is still being run by his granddaughter, Rita Forrester. They have wonderful music every Saturday night and also a Carter Family Museum there. The Down Home in Johnson City is another great music venue for listening to live music. We've got the, we've got a casino opening up or we've got the casino that's halfway opened up and is going to be opening up into a much bigger facility in the near future in Bristol, Virginia. So there is a lot to do here. It is worth a visit for sure. And you have two Tesla chargers. Yes, which I didn't know. So there you go. Oh, and one of our places downtown, the Burger Bar, is supposedly the last place that Hank Williams Sr. was seen alive. He didn't eat there because the food is delicious. But he's, his driver stopped there to get something to eat on it when they were driving to his gig. And supposedly he was still alive because his driver asked him if he needed anything, if he wanted any food. And he said no. Driver went in and got some food and they got back on the road. And unfortunately, he passed away on the way from Bristol to the gig, supposedly. So there's another country music sort of connection here in Bristol with the Burger Bar. Wow. Well, the next time I'm in Bristol, I'm going to have to go there. Oh, and one more thing. Tennessee Ernie Ford was born here, who is not from the, not a 1920s artist, but a 19 sort of 40s, 50s, 60s artist, but also very well known in, in country music, but also because he had a primetime show where he talked about country music and had his Tennessee Ernie Ford persona. He was born in Bristol. And so you can also go see his home place. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Renee. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And thank you, too for listening everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.